When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In ACT, we specifically talk about workable action. That word is commonly in ACT, but means does it work to make me have this bigger, more vital life that's consistent with my values? And that's always that's always the kind of ultimate question. You know, there doesn't have to be some grand plan in terms of goals and actions and whatnot. All I need to think about is in this one moment, who do I want to be? How do I want to be? That was Dr. Jill Stoddard, and you are listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Curious what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists who love to discuss the best ideas from psychology. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoengren, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. In this podcast, we explore the psychological principles that we use in our clinical work. And we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. folks, this is Diana. I want to let you know about some offerings I have, some exciting things. One is in February at Yoga Soup. I'm offering a workshop on psychological flexibility. Check it out at yogasoup.com, which is located in Santa Barbara. It's on a Sunday. And I also am offering a Women's Wellness Day retreat, which is going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. We're going to have uh, organic juices and organic coffee straight from the coffee farm where it's hosted up in Goleta with beautiful ocean views upon your arrival. We're going to have uh, yoga. I'm going to lead a couple of workshops. There's going to be sound healing. Uh, We're going to have a beautiful organic lunch and some opportunity to really immerse yourself in nature and psychological flexibility and overall total health. So I hope you can join me on April 6th. Check it out and enter the code off the clock to get a major discount. Check it out at my website, drdianahill.com. And speaking of total health, um, today we're introducing an episode with Dr. Jill Stoddard, who is an expert in acceptance and commitment therapy, which is an evidence treatment that all three of us co-hosts practice. And we have realized that we, we talk about this therapy in nearly every episode, but we haven't had a chance to dive into the details about acceptance and commitment therapy. And so um, we're really excited to have the amazing Jill Stoddard, who we all adore, uh, come on and talk us through um, what acceptance and commitment therapy is and how we can use it to make our lives more meaningful and happier. Yeah, Al, when I listened to the episode, I just, I think I texted you right away about how much I loved Jill and what a great job she did. I think she does one of the best descriptions of ACT that I've heard and how she walks us through all these processes through metaphors. We just, we're so grateful to have her on and I'm really excited for our listeners to hear. It's unanimous. We all adore her. 
We hope you'll enjoy this interview on acceptance and commitment therapy with Dr. Jill Stoddard. In this episode, I will be talking with clinical psychologist and author of The Big Book of ACT Metaphors, A Practitioner's Guide to Experiential Exercises and Metaphors in Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, Dr. Jill Stoddard. Jill received her PhD from the renowned Boston University Center for Anxiety and Related Disorders under the mentorship of David Barlow. She's currently the director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management in San Diego and is co-founder and vice president of the nonprofit San Diego Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Consortium. Jill is an award-winning teacher and recognized ACT trainer, and her second book, Be Mighty, A Woman's Guide to Liberation from Anxiety, Worry, and Stress Using Mindfulness and Acceptance, will be published by New Harbinger Publications next year. Uh, Welcome, Jill. We're so happy to have you on. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Um, So part of why I'm so excited to have you on the show is that Debbie and Diana and I have realized that we mention acceptance and commitment therapy with uh, pretty much on every episode that we have, Um, and that's because it's an approach that all three of us co-hosts use in our therapy um, practices, and yet we have never completely explained to our listeners what ACT is before. So we're going to start out today by tackling that, um, and I'm so glad to have your expertise on that front. So um, I wonder if maybe you can introduce ACT to us. Um, It's an evidence-based treatment, which means that it's been tested in lots of research trials. You sort of describe some of the central Mm -hmm. themes and goals of ACT. Sure. So the, the real overarching goal of ACT is psychological flexibility. So this is the idea of, you know, the question kind of becomes, can you show up to this one moment? right here, right now, with everything that happens to exist inside and outside of your skin. So all of your thoughts, sensations, emotions, etc., fully and without defense. So can you just allow that to be present in, in whatever form it happens to be in, and then choose what you're going to do or not do based on your values or what is really deeply important to you in terms of um, the kind of person that you want to be, who and how you want to be and what you want to do. So that's kind of the overarching goal. And then ACT has six core concepts um, that all basically act as vehicles for facilitating greater psychological flexibility when we're using those concepts with our clients. Yeah, and we'll get into those six core processes um as in our in our conversation before we go any further i'm just kind of curious cuz i think a lot of the act therapists that i know have come to use acceptance and commitment therapy through experiences of their own that have sort of brought uh brought them in line with oh this is a therapy approach that that really works and here's why and this is sort of a lifestyle approach that really works and here's why and i'm just curious for you if 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 there's sort of a story in how you came to be an act practitioner um, it, it yes. So when I was uh, when I was in graduate school at BU, um, it was a much more uh, CBT oriented kind of program. Um, 
but Liz Romer and Sue Orsillo were doing a, um, I can't remember if it was a pilot study or their R01, but it was looking at an acceptance-based treatment and an act-like treatment um, for generalized anxiety disorder. And they were using clients from our anxiety clinic at BU and invited students, graduate students, to be the therapists on the protocol. And they had asked if I had wanted to participate. Um, and I struggled a little bit because, of course, as a graduate student, you're completely overwhelmed and are working 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And it doesn't seem like there's a moment for anything extra. And I didn't know much about ACT, but you know, I thought saying yes to as many learning opportunities as possible um, would be a, a, a beneficial idea. And, and I am so grateful that I did that because it's been life changing. And, you know, I started out as a prominently, you know, more, um, more commonly doing traditional cognitive behavioral therapy and a little bit of ACT. And just, you know, over time, that balance has really shifted quite a lot where um, I not only do ACT almost exclusively with my clients, but I genuinely, I mean, I live my own life completely by the principles of ACT and I credit it for my just sort of overall sense of well-being and balance and yeah. And yeah. so for you, what do you see as that? So cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT is a more change focused, uh, therapy approach where you're working on trying to, um, challenge cognitive distortions or unhelpful thoughts and, uh, change behavioral patterns and acceptance and commitment therapy is sort of infuses a lot more of the acceptance into the treatment approach. And I'm, I'm curious for you, like when you, when you sort of went from being a CBT therapist to more of an ACT therapist, what were the parts of it that, that really just resonated with you? Well, I mean, I think for one, the idea of when we're focusing on changing our relationship to the thoughts and feelings that show up rather than trying to change the thoughts and feelings themselves, there's something about that that feels, I don't know, for me, it was like a burden had been lifted. You know, it's not that the way I'm thinking is wrong. It's not pathological. It's not, you know, I'm not failing at life because I'm thinking too negatively or something like that. You know, it's we we all have these stories and these narratives that are old and they get triggered all the time. And, you know, we don't have to chase them down and find better ways of thinking. We really just need to kind of observe and allow them to be present. And then we get to decide what to do or not to do, whether or not to pay attention to them. Um, you know, one one metaphor that I like to think about, and I know we're going to talk about this going forward, is I, I often get this visual image of a puppet on a string, you know, like a marionette puppet. And, um, that your thoughts and your feelings are like holding the crossbars and they're, they can be in charge of the way that you're moving your hands and your feet and your mouth. And, you know, CBT suggests like you have to get control of that. Like you have to change the way that the, the puppeteer is sort of moving and acting in, in order to see any change in your life. Whereas act is like, you just kind of have to cut the strings so, you know, the, the, the hands can still be above you and the crossbars can still be moving and wiggling in whatever ways they're, they're going to, you know, the thoughts can be there, the feelings can be there, but you can choose how to move your hands and your feet in whatever way your values dictate. And there's no need to kind of clamp down and, and control. It's really more about letting go. So 
for me, that just felt very freeing. Um, and then I just think the focus on, on values and really getting connected with what truly, truly matters, um, is it also just felt really liberating. And, and I think over the, it's probably been close to 20 years since I was first introduced to ACT. And so my own understanding and practice has really evolved as well. And, and, you know, right now in this moment in time, what I find to be the most powerful is focusing on this one moment in time that, you know, there doesn't have to be some grand plan in terms of goals and actions and whatnot. All I need to think about is in this one moment, who do I want to be? How do I want to be? What am I going to do? And that doesn't mean, you know, you don't have goals for your life. I don't mean to suggest that, but that it really can be as simple as, you know, when, when you sent me uh, the email inviting me to be on the podcast in that one moment, I have a choice to say yes or to say no. And of course, a lot of thoughts and feelings popped up, anxiety, and am I going to have anything interesting to say? All sorts of, the narrative really gets loud, right? The inner critic and the imposter and all of those characters show up. And the only thing I really need to think about is in this one moment, I have a choice. And that choice is to say yes or to say no. And that can either be dictated by that inner critic and imposter and anxiety, or it can be dictated by what matters to me and who I want to be. And I, what matters to me is if I can get this powerful information about this incredible treatment out into the world in a way I otherwise wouldn't be able to, that's what I'm going to do. So that's a no brainer. That's a yes. And I can show up and anxiety can be present and thoughts can be present and there's nothing that I need to do there. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, what I love about ACT is very similar to what it is that you're describing, which is that ACT doesn't focus on pain reduction or on elimination of discomfort, but instead it focuses on magnifying our ability to live in line with what is important to us, even when that means confronting discomfort or even pain. And similar to what you described, I think that in graduate school, I because I also came from a very uh, change-focused approach of CBT, uh, I personally witnessed a a lot of my own failure to kind of get my own anxiety under control. I was kind of the the typical graduate student, kind of worried all the time. Mm -hmm. I was feeling like I was falling short, definitely high uh, imposter syndrome levels. Um, And for me, getting the – being – opened up to this idea that it was okay to have those thoughts and to have those feelings, but that what really counted was making choices that embodied the things that were important to me, kind of freed me up not to worry about it so much. Really, all it can be about is the choice, the process, the the how I'm going to move my hands and feet, and we'll see what happens. And, you know, I think the part about the pain, like when you were talking about graduate school, that that made me think of is, you know, I think we all know on an intellectual level, we can see that certain types of pain, you know, emotion is useful. It gives us data um, that if I touch a hot stove and my hand hurts, I know to pull my hand away, this kind of thing. Um, But I think what we fail to think about that is equally, if not even more important, is that pain also tells us what matters to us. 
So like if graduate school didn't matter to you, if being successful and learning so that you could do this incredible job and help people and, and engage in science and whatnot, if it didn't matter, you wouldn't have been anxious. So, you know, to, to think that we should want to reduce the pain. I mean, in some ways, it just really doesn't make sense when you think about it. And with ACT, when we're talking about valued living, it's not like if we start to pursue our values, we're suddenly going to feel less anxious. It's very possible that the more we kind of live out loud in this way and really are willing to do the stuff that matters to us, the more we're going to experience anxiety, fear, imposter syndrome, all of those things, because we're putting ourselves out there in areas that we care about, where failure, you know, matters to us. The stakes are higher, I guess, is what I'm saying. And so really, it kind of makes sense that those emotions are then going to be even more intense. Yeah, yeah. But it gets accompanied by this ability to live in a way that that feels meaningful. And at mm -hmm. the end of the day, that is what makes for a happy and fulfilling life. Mm -hmm. So being willing to confront that and lean into it enables you to extract more of happiness from life, even if the happiness goes along with discomfort. And, and that's sort of the paradox. A hundred percent. And I think too, is that you kind of can't have one without the other. You know, if, if you are really excited about, um, let's say you get a promotion at work, if you stifle the longing along the way, you know, you sort of pretend like, oh, I don't care. I don't care if I get it one way or the other. You know, this is going to be the protective thing so that I'm not disappointed and I'm going to stifle those difficult emotions. Um, you know, you don't really get to have the full experience, the positive emotions that come when you do get that promotion. You know, you don't really know the, like that immense joy you experience when you're reunited with someone you love, that only comes if you know the pain of missing someone so much it hurts. Yeah. You don't get the intensity of the emotions you like if you're stifling the ones you'd rather not have along the way. You know, part of being human is this kind of having the full range of emotional experience. Right, right. Yeah, no, it's it's and and that's a part of um, I think the Eastern philosophy that gets adopted within ACT, which is this idea of it's very yin and yang, and you sort of mm -hmm. by embracing you know the dark and the light, you get to experience you know the the entirety, which is which really is greater than the sum of its parts, and mm -hmm. you know our happiness does get magnified by our ability to experience all the different pieces of the human emotional experience. Mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to um, ask you to talk a little bit about was the way that ACT really leans into language and, and sort of the science of language and how we sort of incorporate that. And then that might lead us into talking a little bit about where metaphors fit into the treatment approach. Yeah, absolutely. So if we think about the kind of overarching goal is psychological flexibility, then the opposite of that would be psychological inflexibility. And the idea in ACT is that where psychological inflexibility comes from is kind of an over-reliance on language. So as humans, um, you know, we have these incredible, amazing brains that allow us to predict and evaluate and problem solve and do this all, you know, this really complex thinking that is amazing. Um, when 
that thinking is used for kind of issues that are outside of our skin. So for example, um, let's say I go to leave my office today and I find that for some reason I'm unable to open the door and I, you know, wiggle and jiggle the, the, the handle and I just can't seem to get out. I can use my higher cognitive abilities that put we as humans up at the top of the food chain um, essentially to solve that problem. So, okay, my door is stuck. I can't seem to get out. I might first think about what I think caused that problem. Because if I notice that the deadbolt just happened to get turned, then I know all I need to do is flip it back and I'll be out. If I'm not certain what, what the origin is, I can create all sorts of, I can brainstorm all sorts of possibilities for how I might get out. So I might yell, I might use my cell phone, I might break a window. Eventually I'll find a solution, likely get out of the locked room, and then I can evaluate, did it work? Okay, you know, I called my landlord, the landlord came up, let me out of the room, there. Effective solution for this locked door problem and then I've also sort of learned a lesson, which is don't shut the door tightly until this locking mechanism is fixed. And that's going to prevent me from getting stuck again. But the problem arises when we take those same exact cognitive abilities and try to apply them to things we're calling problems inside of our skin. So for example, if I am in the mall and I suddenly have a panic attack and I decide this is a problem that I need to solve. I might think, what do I think is the origin of this problem? Just like the deadbolt on the door. If I think, gosh, maybe it's the mall that caused the panic attack. Maybe it's because I'm overheated or dehydrated. Maybe it's because it's crowded. There's a problem here because really this is unsubstantiated worry, essentially. So now I'm going to come up with all sorts of solutions for how I might solve this problem of my panic attack. Well, I can leave the mall. I can blast the air conditioning on the way home. I can drink water. I can, you know, call a friend. I can take a Xanax. And then I'm going to evaluate how effective that was. And my panic attack will have gone away because by their very nature, that is what they do. So I'll say, oh, it must have been because I escaped or because I took that Xanax. That's what solved the problem of my panic attack. It worked. But of course, if I had just stayed in the mall in 15 or 20 minutes, the same exact thing would have happened. And then I may have this lesson that I've learned, which is maybe you shouldn't go back to the mall. Probably you should avoid malls, avoid crowds, avoid getting hot, avoid getting dehydrated. And, you know, you won't have any more panic attacks. But that ends up being life restricting and potentially um, kind of limiting engagement in the world and doing things that might be important to you or things that are valued. So when we start kind of using those cognitive abilities to solve these problems of what's happening inside of our skin, we tend to really limit our repertoire in terms of what we can do or will do or won't do, and that's life restricting. And so that would be psychological inflexibility. So if Flexibility is showing up to this moment with whatever thoughts and feelings are present, fully and without defense, and doing what matters. Psychological inflexibility would be I'm going to try to control or avoid the thoughts and feelings that I don't want to have, even if those things are taking me away from something that's important to me. And so, what the 
experiential practice then does, you know, if we're in psychotherapy, all we're doing is languaging. I mean, it's talk, (laughs) it's even called talk therapy. So if what we're saying is that language is part of the problem that's keeping us stuck and creating inflexibility, you know, how on earth can therapy be the solution to that problem? And um, so that's where the, the experiential practice and act comes in is to try to bypass some of those traps that, that language can create. And so that's not to say that, you know, language is bad, of course, you know, if there were any other species stuck in that locked room, they would die of, you know, hunger or dehydration. (laughs) Um, So this is, these can be very helpful skills, of course, but they can also be misplaced and, um, you know, sort of used in ways that tend to keep us more stuck. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the idea, the the importance of how language can um, really create inflexibility in our behaviors, I think just comes out, I think the examples that you gave are so wonderful. And I always just go back to the couples therapy room because I think about some of the ways that we generate narratives uh, and understandings about our partners and how that really causes us to miss, uh, miss out on disconfirming evidence. So you may have, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, my partner is late and, and then I come to the story of, and therefore he doesn't care about me. And that belief and, and that narrative causes me to miss and, and sort of filter out information that would be disconfirming to that storyline. And so I think in all these ways, language can really keep us stuck and in ways that we may not even be aware of because it is, we're so inside of it. We're so inside of the belief. And I think the way that ACT approaches that is to sort of get help people to get a little bit of distance from, the, from their thoughts, from the storylines that they've generated, from the beliefs that they're really stuck on. And a lot of the different practices, um, you know, like the mindful practices help you to do that in experiential ways. And then metaphors help us do it in a very different way. And I love this quote. And I actually, I tried to look up where it came from and I couldn't figure it out. So if any listeners can let me know who said this quote, but it is that if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a metaphor is worth a thousand pictures. And I think that really speaks to the power of the metaphor. So for you, Jill, why, how do you see metaphors as being really central in act? Yeah, sure. So what metaphors really do specifically is try to kind of make abstract concepts a little bit more concrete. And they do that by evoking thoughts or feelings or behaviors that are essentially similar to whatever it is that is evoked by the client's actual experience. Um, And then, you know, because metaphors are, you know, they're essentially mini little stories and the richness of those can then make the, the, the learning more memorable, more salient, more meaningful. What's important is that, you know, the metaphor is just one specific type of experiential practice, but there are also these other more kind of active exercises that we can do in the room that still act as metaphors, but aren't just stories. Um, and then, as you had mentioned, there are kind of mindfulness or the present moment awareness comes typically, what comes to mind is mindfulness or meditation-like exercises, which aren't metaphors, but are putting people in touch with elements of their experience rather than just talking. Um, but even in the way that we ask questions, we can 
we can do this right away. So, you know, I might, you were, I was just listening to your um, essentialism episode, actually, and and you guys were talking about um, people pleasing, and how common that is for people to say that they just feel like they have to make everybody happy all the time. And what an obstacle, those thoughts, right, that thought getting hooked or fused with that thought, I have to make everybody happy all the time. And gosh, if I don't, they might not like me, they might think badly of me. And, you know, I just, I, I couldn't take it. It would be terrible. And so that thought is really in charge of everything people are doing or not doing. And so, you know, maybe they're just saying yes to everything and feeling overwhelmed. And now they're a jack of all trades, master of none. And that's inflexible. Um, so right from the very beginning, I could ask, you know, a client who's reporting that they're struggling um, with people pleasing, I might say something like, well, do you, I mean, do you really think it's true that um, if you're assertive that people won't like you, if you don't please everybody, you won't have any friends or what evidence do you have for that? And what happens, and, and even listeners now can think about if I were asking you that question, what does that elicit from you? And what you get are are just sort of a languaging debate about how true or false this statement is. And then you're just really kind of getting back into the rules and the evaluations and the language that don't really move you forward. But if instead I said, well, um, you know, when you just go along with everything your spouse wants to do and you, you don't speak up or you don't set limits, does that make you feel closer, more connected, or more disconnected from him or her? So even in the question that's being asked, in the absence of any kind of like fancy metaphor or anything else, the person is put in a position to talk about their experience rather than just relying on rules and predictions and evaluations. And so we see like, what's the pain? Um, you know, this kind of fear. We know there's this fear of being rejected or not being liked. Um, we see the function. So if someone is telling me that when they are passive, they avoid the um, fear of not being liked, we see the function of that behavior of passivity. Um, but then we can also look at the cost that even though this makes me feel safer or less vulnerable, it actually does make me feel less connected to my partner. And my partner is someone who's important to me and feeling connected to my partner is something that matters to me. So, you know, in just one or two questions, just the way we word them can tell us about pain and function and cost. And now we have a nice platform to talk about what an alternative might be. Yeah. So we see flexi inflexibility and how it might turn into flexibility. And then the same goes for um, just kind of pointing out process in the therapy room. You know, if, if every time um, I notice I bring up a client's past, for example, she changes the subject, then I might stop and slow us down and point out what I'm noticing. And then we can talk about, you know, right before. So I asked you, this particular question about your childhood. And right before you answered, what did you notice right then? How did you feel? Or what was your mind telling you? And maybe it's, I felt scared. I felt vulnerable. My mind said, you're going to judge me if I tell you the truth. And so now we have the pain right there in the room. Yeah. And 
we see what the behavior was, what the typical behavior likely is when pain shows up. I do something to avoid, to feel safe, to move away, right? And the client and I can observe that and talk about that. And then we can look at, um, you know, so when you change the subject, we you see you get to feel a little bit safer. But what do you, you know, do you think that there might be a cost to that? Um, or does that make you feel closer to me or further away from me as your therapist? I mean, you could go in a number of different directions. Um, and most likely that cost of maybe not getting what I need from therapy to be able to really move forward in my life is going to be related to values. It's it's probably simpler than it might seem at first blush because all we're really looking for is what's the pain? What do you do or not do when it shows up? What does that get you? What's the function? Because it works or you wouldn't do it. Everything we do or don't do works or we wouldn't do it. at least in the very short term, right? right? Even procrastination, the minute you give yourself permission to put that thing off, you feel flooded with relief. Yeah. But then, you know, what's the cost? Right. Or like drinking or eating too much or whatever, you know, in the moment they they work. Those those behaviors work because they reduce whatever discomfort or, or help you to get something that you were looking for. Exactly right. And then you know, and if, what is the cost of that and how is that consistent or inconsistent with your values? And the, I like to say the me I want to be as like dorky and, you know, cheesy <laughs> as that sounds. And then what's the alternative? You know, is there a different way that we might be willing to go about doing this? And that's really, again, kind of turning inflexibility into greater flexibility. And there are, so many different ways to be able to do that. And then the practices and the metaphors are essentially creating a new context to be able to, um, to practice that essentially. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I, I think what you're saying is such a great articulation of some of the objectives of act when it comes to the language, I think, we have a hard time unhooking from the ways that our language can lead us down paths that don't fit with the kind of lives that we want to live or, or the me's that we want to be. Um, and our emotions actually are informative. And this is kind of what you, you were describing earlier, which is that, you know, if we're feeling really unhappy, if we're feeling unfulfilled, if we're feeling highly anxious all the time or very depressed, it can be a cue to us to look at what we're doing and and what stories we're telling ourselves. And that can be an opportunity to take a step back and and to ask, you know, what, what is it that I'm feeling? How is that directing me to think and then act? And then how closely is that are my ultimate behaviors? um, How much in line with the kind of life that I would like to be living or how far apart is it? And then is that a cue for me to kind of take a step back and, and to see what other options I have? Mm-hmm. And so I think in in a very fundamental way, ACT is very, um, it's, it's very kind of utility-based. Like, is it working for you or is it not? But the way that you make that evaluation of whether or not it's working is very value-based as opposed to like, are you feeling good all the time? It's more, um, you know, at the end of your life, are you going to look back and say, oh, I, I led a good, meaningful life or, or not, as opposed to was I, did I wake up happy every day? Because the reality is, and right. I think acceptance and commitment therapy really 
uh, emphasizes this is that nobody wakes up happy every single day. We all have emotions. We all feel happy, sad, anxious, angry, disappointed, frustrated, and that's normal. Um, but it's right. really the goal is is to sort of live a life where you can say I I was the kind of person that I want to be, and I and I tried to extract as much meaning as I as I possibly could. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Exactly. And I, I'm glad you brought up that this idea of does it work? Because the way we typically think of it and the way I was just talking about it, it works or we wouldn't do it means it works to make me feel better. But in ACT, we specifically talk about workable action. That word is commonly in ACT, but means does it work to make me have this bigger, more vital life that's consistent with my values? And that's always, that's always the kind of ultimate question. And how can I get more of that, even if it means bringing some of that pain along for the ride? Yeah, yeah. And so in terms of the core processes, I think acceptance of pain is one of the first ones, right? So this is kind of a central feature of ACT, the idea that when we don't accept pain, when we push away on pain, when we say, I'm not willing to experience discomfort or pain, that is a part of what makes us quite inflexible. And so I wonder if, um, what are your favorite metaphors for sort of explaining why that's not workable for people? Yeah, that there are many, many ways to, to do this. And I think different ACT practitioners probably have their, their own favorites. Um, I, I think one of the originals from the 1999 um, ACT book that's written by Steve Hayes and Kirk Storsall and Kelly Wilson, which is this idea of an anxiety detector machine. So if I have a machine, it's, you know, it's kind of like a lie detector machine. I can hook it up to your body and it can tell exactly how anxious or stressed you are. And I say, you know, just don't get anxious and you'll be fine. Everything will be okay. But, uh, you know, if you do get anxious and my meter registers right about here at this level, it's going to deliver a lethal shock and you're going to die. But, you know, just don't get anxious and you'll be completely fine. You know, what's going to happen? Why are you laughing? Because <laughs> how would somebody not get anxious if somebody said, uh, don't feel anxious or I'm going to kill you? <laughs> exactly, right? And we all, like you, before I even had to finish the sentence, you got where that was going, yeah. right? So, okay, wait a minute. So as long as I'm unwilling to have it, I'm going to have it. And here's why. I'm now saying to myself, oh my God, anxiety is bad. Anxiety is dangerous. If I feel anxious, I'm going to kill my, I'm, I'm going to die. So I have to not be anxious. I can't be anxious. So you're anxious about anxiety. So you're anxious. So it's a trap, right? Like this, this idea that if we just try hard enough or if the stakes or if the incentive is high enough, we should be able to control stress or anxiety. It doesn't actually make any sense. And, you know, I, I get, uh, gosh, every other day, if you watch the Today Show or, or you read the Huffington Post or wherever, it's stress, stress, stress is terrible. Cortisol, you're going to die if you get stressed. I mean, we're almost literally being told exactly that. And if you think about it, like, oh my God, I can't be stressed. I better not get stressed. If I get stressed, I'm going to I'm going to die. Well, now you're stressed about having stress, so you're stressed. <laughs> so if you don't want it, you're guaranteed to have it. So I yeah. think that's a nice metaphor, really, for that. And, and it's it's a great way to get a little bit of buy-in yeah. for why maybe thinking about acceptance as an alternative yeah. Um, yeah. might be a good idea. Yeah. And, of course, that's when clients say, oh, okay, I get it. So if I'm willing to have it, then I won't have it. 
because of course nobody wants to feel anxious or stressed, you know, unless you're a masochist. And, uh, you know, then the bad news, I guess, is, well, no, that's not how it works. But, you know, yeah. if you're not willing to have it, you've got it. If you are willing to have it, then anxiety will do what anxiety does and what all emotions do, which is come and go and rise and fall. And Yeah. I always laugh that um, when I'm talking about this concept with my clients that I'm like the therapist everybody wants to fire because <laughs> I say, uh, I'm not the therapist that says that uh, you're going to be happy all the time because I think I think there is value to sort of seeing the utility and to appreciating that the uncomfortable emotions, but also, you know, t- that there's value in and of themselves. And then there's value in sort of knowing that they come and go because then you're not holding on so tight. It kind of reminds me of, there was a... Um, a research study that was discussed maybe last year uh, looking at anxiety in mice. And I think they had figured out a way to um, go into, uh, I don't know if it was genetic modification or or through um, brain surgery, but to reduce anxiety in mice. And they found that they really could. And so it was this very hopeful thing, oh, now we can reduce anxiety in mice. And I thought to myself, that doesn't sound like a good outcome to me, because if you have non-anxious mice, they're all going to get eaten. (laughs) And so I think, you know, we have to appreciate that our, our emotions exist for a reason and not be so afraid of them. And that is what allows them to feel a lot more tolerable. It's sort of the story on top of the story. So acceptance helps them, accepting them and accepting the discomfort does this paradoxical thing, which makes it a lot more tolerable, even though what you're accepting is something that you originally thought was intolerable. Right. Well, and I think it's, it's also important to add that, you know, we're not saying that acceptance means you have to like it or want it, or that you're sitting in pain because there's some glory and just sitting in pain for pain's sake. Um, but that it, it, you know, if, if there were a way, like, let's, maybe I have a metaphor for this. Like, let's say that there's a, you know, beautiful mountain in front of you and it feels really important to you to go on this journey and to get, get to this mountain and climb this mountain. But in front of you is a, you know, really big swamp. Now, if the swamp, if you could walk around the swamp and still get to the mountain without much cost, then of course do that. But if the swamp stretches out in all directions and the only way to get to the mountain is to go through the swamp, then that seems like what's needed in order to be effective. But then if you find a wooden plank that you can put on top of the swamp to walk across and still get to the mountain, that's perfectly fine too. But if the plank breaks halfway there, then you got to go through the swamp. So I think that's where some flexibility needs to come in. You know, it's not, ACT is never saying, you know, don't ever take medication. Don't ever do anything if that thing makes you feel better. You know, if we think of, so the opposite of acceptance would be experiential avoidance. So really anything you do or don't do to try to change the way you feel on the inside would be technically experiential avoidance. Doesn't mean all experiential avoidance is problematic. It depends whether it has a cost and whether it moves you closer to or further away from that valued path. So if I have a headache and I take a couple Advil, technically that would be experiential avoidance. It's something I'm doing that's changing the way I feel on the inside. But if I do it once in a while and it's not known to cause problems at small doses and it makes it even more likely that I can show up and be present and play a game with my kids because I'm not hurting, great, do that. 
Um, if however, I'm so unwilling to feel any element of breakthrough pain that I'm popping, you know, six Advil every two hours and I have an ulcer and now I'm getting breakthrough headaches that are being caused by the Advil that was meant to get rid of them in the first place. Well, now it has a huge cost and that is not ideal. And so, you know, I think we want to think about this in a in a fairly flexible way and really Absolutely. the kind of cost values perspective yeah. related to it. Yeah. I always I like to use um a similar example but it's with cookies. So if I have a hard day, sometimes like a sweet makes me feel better. I say sometimes with air quotes cuz cuz that is <laughs> one of my um self-soothing mechanisms. And what I talk about in the therapy room is that doing that isn't a problem as long as it's done flexibly, but it's that if every time I have an uncomfortable emotion, I have to eat an entire package of cookies, that's going to end up being a problem because it's going to be unhealthy and it's very rigid. But if there are ways that you can approach that behavior um, and the emotional experience with some flexibility, then it doesn't end up creating such a divide between the me that I want to be and the me that I'm being in real life. Mm-hmm. And I think the real key element there is choice and that a big part of what maybe the, um, the, of the six core concepts, the present moment awareness that you mentioned, you know, to me, what this is all about is getting off autopilot that, you know, the way we're sort of typically in motion is, um, that we're just doing everything reactively and automatically without really being conscious and deliberate and choosing what we're doing or not doing. Um, and, and actually I have a metaphor that I like for that, which is, um, and hopefully it doesn't, it involves a weapon. So I should, I'll, I'll (laughs) warn sensitive listeners, but I like to think about it as a detonator and a bomb. And, um, so the detonator is our buttons getting pushed essentially that there are going to be things that happen that, um, trigger certain thoughts and feelings. And that's the detonator. And typically when you push a detonator, a bomb immediately explodes. And that would be that instant reactivity. So, you know, when I get home at the end of the day, I'm tired. My children are tired. Everybody's gas tank is empty. um, And they start fighting with each other. And for me, my kids fighting with each, you know, it's like nails on a chalkboard, them fighting with each other is an instant detonator for me. The irritability just, I mean, it's instant and almost feels overwhelming. And the bomb, if I'm irritable and I'm on autopilot, I don't mean to mix metaphors, but (laughs) um, the bomb is that I snap at them. You know, I'm mean. And that is not consistent with my values. That's not the mom that I want to be, the me I want to be. Um, and so I think with the, ple- the present moment awareness, what it's essentially doing is if I'm showing up to the present moment, so like when you're getting home and you feel like you notice this need for some self-soothing, whatever the emotions and thoughts are that kind of show up in that moment, the example of you know just mindlessly eating an entire package of cookies, that's that kind of detonator bomb versus taking a beat to be present, to notice how you're feeling, what you're experiencing, and then making a deliberate conscious choice to eat that one cookie rather than just blow up and eat an entire package of cookies. Um, And I like to think of present moment awareness as the thing that kind of creates the space between the detonator and the bomb. And then in that space, we can use some of these other core concepts of 
the observing self and diffusion and willingness. And those are the ways that we deactivate the bomb so that we can then make conscious, deliberate choices that are value driven rather than just reactive based on how we're feeling or thinking. Absolutely. And so that kind of brings me to cognitive diffusion, which I think is one of the core processes that I that I struggle with the most because I'm such a person who lives up in my head and it is um, my brain, like many of us, right? We're sort of wired this way, so there's nothing terribly unique about me, but I do struggle with uh, unhooking from my thoughts. And I think that ACT has such a, a nice way of framing that. And I was just curious if, if there are any favorite metaphors that you have for this idea of getting really caught up in the content of your thoughts and how do you help clients? Um, well, one of the things I like to do that would be considered diffusion, and I'm not sure if it would technically really count as a metaphor, but is to, um, it, it's sort of like an externalizing of some of the thoughts that show up. And, um, you know, so like naming your inner critic, for example. So um, it could be something like, oh, there's my inner critic, or there's my inner bully, or there's the mouthy teenager, um, or I just call mine Sheila. And me, it like brings some levity. No offense to anyone named Sheila. I don't even know where <laughs> it came from. It just sort of like popped up one day where, you know, kind of like pipe down, Sheila. And <laughs> not because I'm actually trying to suppress those thoughts or make them go away in any way. But it sort of brings levity um, to be able to not take those thoughts so seriously, because in essence, that's what we're trying to do is um, see thoughts as what they are, which is sounds and syllables and language, not truths with a capital T necessarily. Um, you know, so when I hear all of those whatever version of the I'm not good enough story that happens to pop up, I might just say like, oh, hi, Sheila, you know, oh, there's Sheila, you know, this is no surprise. And sort of treat that with like curiosity. I wonder why she just popped up today or right here or right now in this context or, you know, what are you trying to tell me, Sheila? What, there's <laughs> got to be something important right now or, you know, you wouldn't be piping up and kind of noticing how Sheila never has anything to say about you know, my cooking, because I don't care if I'm a world-class chef or not, but she has a lot to say about what a bad mom I am or, you know, about my professional world or, you know, the things that matter to me. And so to be able to kind of detach from the content of the stories and the thoughts and sort of look at it rather than from it, and see what is this telling me about what matters. And then I can choose whether listening to this thought is going to help me and move forward with, you know, the things that matter to me, or whether, you know, it's just old stuff showing up that kind of threatens to get me more stuck and can be held to the side um, while still moving forward with what matters. Yeah. And that, that sort of fits in. I mean, and what, most of us act practitioners know and, and what listeners will discover is that all of these core processes are really interrelated because I think that that really relates back to self as context is this idea that the stuff that happens in our mind is is something is a part of us but that we also and, and that we sort of get inside of it and it feels like all of us but that we also have this observing self that can kind of look down and say, oh, that's just a part, right? That's just Sheila. Pipe down, mm -hmm. Sheila, because there's some other mm -hmm. voices that want to, 
you know, come into the um, to the room and and have their say too. And that observing self helps you to get some perspective on all the different things that happen in your mind. And and that too is related to this present moment awareness because it sort of gives you a little bit of distance from all the stuff that is um, just you know running through your internal experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and really, you know, diffusion, I think, encompasses that observing self. You know, in both cases, it is this kind of stepping back and observing the activity of the mind and the content of the mind and the stories and the narratives and the I am statements um, and then making choices that are based on values, not based strictly because you're following some script that may or may not be helpful. Um, and there's actually a, a, the metaphor that I like to think about for observing self. And I guess that this is all saying something about my own maybe sense of humor or something <laughs> um, is to kind of think about um, taking kind of the perspective of an anthropologist. So, you know, when an anthropologist goes and studies, you know, a, a tribe somewhere, somewhere in, in, a, um, in a remote land, you they have to be. Um, separate and unobtrusive and simply observing. So they're not meant to insert themselves into what's going on. Part of them doing their job is stepping back and simply watching what's happening and recording it. You know, they come from the perspective of um, a curious observer. So what am, what am I seeing? And I'm going to, you know, take notes. And so to be able to be like an anthropologist, as you observe your internal experiences, and specifically the things that you notice in your mind, without getting um, intertwined with those things, is to me what it means to kind of make contact with that observing self. I like that. I like that very much. And then how about values? Because values are so central to being able to kind of, uh, well, I see values as like just the compass, right? Because emotions can sometimes be useful, but sometimes they can be really misleading. But in act, values are something you can always come back to, to help you sort of find the best course forward. And I'm curious for you, what are the metaphors that you like to use to help people identify what their unique values are? Yeah. I well this is less a metaphor and more more an exercise or can even be a conversation and this is um Kelly Wilson's exercise that I think was first in Mindfulness for Two which is his book that's not a couples book but is about mindfulness yeah. in the psychotherapy room. Diana has um, talked about that as being her favorite and he's been a guest on our show. He's lovely. Mm-hmm. He's amazing and the, and his this exercise he calls the sweet spot. And I love it because, you know, so much of therapy, especially early on, it's can be about understanding the pain and the hard stuff and the struggle and the stuckness. And this is an opportunity to say, so we've talked a lot about all of that. Let's turn the tables a little bit. And I want you to tell me about a moment you knew sweetness. Like if you just think back over your experience and it doesn't have to be the biggest moment. It doesn't have to be your wedding day or the day you gave birth to your child. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. You know, it could be the first sip of coffee you have on a Sunday morning or something like that. And just think about a moment that you knew sweetness. And so you can do this as a closed eye mindfulness scripted exercise that can be quite long and really make contact with all the elements of that person's um, sweet spot. Or you can do it, you know, more as a a conversation where you just talk about it. Um, But when the person then 
gives voice to that sweet spot, whatever they share with you tells you something about what matters to them. You know, they choose that memory for a reason. And of the, you know, probably hundreds of times I've done this now, it's my favorite because of what I hear, but also what I don't hear. And what I mean by that is never once has anyone said to me, you know, it was the first time I sat in my new BMW. And <laughs> you know, and there is nothing wrong with loving your car or, you know, wanting to have a BMW. My husband loves his car. That's okay. You know, but it's more that like, when you really stop and think about the moments you experience sweetness, 100% of the time, in my experience anyway, it is most commonly about connection with other human beings, second most commonly about connection with animals, and third, connection with nature and the planet. And then once in a while, you know, I had someone talk about um, completing a race that they had participated in. But even that, once we unpacked it, it was about doing it with her girlfriends. Um, and then once you sort of have that little moment, you can unpack a little bit of like, what do we know about you and what matters to you based on this story? And then I also like to even talk about the one thing we know had to have been true, um, for this to have been a moment of sweetness was that you had to be present. You had to show up for it. Because if you weren't, you wouldn't have experienced the sweetness, nor would you remember it to be telling me about it right now. So to be able to talk about how, you know, these small things really matter. And I think culturally, we're sort of like sold this bill of goods that everything is about the next big achievement. Yeah. But you get to count all of those in a lifetime, maybe on two hands. So what's the rest of our life, right? It's like these small, seemingly insignificant moments that are like weave together on a daily basis. And if we're not showing up and being present for them, we're missing them. And so the practice of act and psychological flexibility doesn't even have to be about enormous changes. It can be about when I'm walking through the door at the end of a very long day and I am tired and grumpy and just want to go pour a glass of wine and lump out and veg out But my two kids and my two French bulldogs come running down the hallway, screaming and snorting and, you know, tackling me that I can just be in that one moment and soak in every little piece of it. Full well knowing that in 45 seconds, my kids are going to be screaming at each other and I'm going to be dealing with my irritability and trying not to snap at them. And Right. But that like, if we show up to the sweet ones, if we're just so overly focused on all the stuff we don't like to have, we're kind of missing the stuff that at least gives us this sense of like vitality and purpose and meaning, even when it comes in these tiny little doses. Absolutely. And I think that, so I write a lot about the working parent life and working parent challenges. And, and that's something that, um, that I really think a lot about in terms of, you know, what we value in life and then also the challenges of showing up for some of the things that we value because you are stressed out, you are overwhelmed. And yet there's this opportunity, there's, there's this choice that can be made to, to really show up and to savor it. And, and that kind of brings us to committed action. So this is the final core process of act where, um, 
you work towards engagement and behaviors that are in line with your values. And I think that was just a really great example of sort of identifying this value of, of really savoring those special small moments that you've identified as being valuable and then engaging in a committed action to that that is in line with that value. And so it's sort of, again, it kind of ties a lot of these processes together, but it's the mindfulness and then it's sort of the willingness to accept the fact that that sweet moment may be followed by an irritable one. Um, and, and I think that um, it, it is so important to sort of recognize that they all kind of tie together, but but specifically when it comes to thinking about values and then the actions that go along with it, that it, it may mean that, you know, you develop, cultivate a willingness to, for some of the discomfort to go along with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when I talk about committed action, what I find myself talking the most about is the obstacles to committed action. Because, you know, everybody knows like what, okay, the committed action part's just walking the walk. It's just doing, you know, taking those steps. You know, you, I think you did an episode recently with DJ Moran and he was talking nicely about the external obstacles versus the internal obstacles and kind of how to overcome some of those. Um, so I won't get into all of that. People can go back and listen to that. It's great. But, um, the metaphor that I really like to use that I think kind of um, wraps all of this together, kind of, you know, ending in this, well, not that you end in committed action, you're always kind of bouncing around all of these different processes, but is that I like to think of it kind of um, like uh, it's, I call it, you know, my lighthouse metaphor. So essentially um, you're a ship and you're on a journey and you're tacking left and right and on an adventure and, um, maybe moving toward a specific shore or port that you're wanting to visit. And all of a sudden the fog rolls in and the fog is so thick, you can barely see your hand in front of your face. And it seems dangerous. You know, you could crash into a, a jetty of sharp rocks or into another ship. And so, you know, it's like you have no choice but to just drop anchor and you hang out and you wait, you know, you wait because the fog's going to clear eventually. Right. But like, what if the fog doesn't clear, is there an alternative here? And so the lighthouse actually is the metaphor for the values. So the, the alternative is to, you know, we have a way to move forward even when it's foggy and that's the lighthouse. And so if we can look to that beacon to be our guide and that's the values, then the committed action is, can I be willing to pull up this anchor? And I think one of the most common obstacles to committed action is this I will when story, which is, well, I will do that once I, you know, I, I had a, a client once who's so memorable to me because I just adored her and she was so bright and just had so much to offer the world and she wanted a new job and she had been divorced and wanted to be dating and um, kept saying, well, I'm, I, I'm going to do all those things. I really am. And I put my resume together and she was taking some steps, but it, as soon as I lose 50 pounds, because, you know, if I'm overweight, I'm going to be less likely to get hired and no one's going to want to date me. And so that was the fog, right? All of that had rolled in. She had dropped anchor and she knew where she wanted to go. And she had her whole plan for, you know, how she might get there. But she wasn't willing to keep sailing until, right, yeah. she had dropped anchor. And so the committed action piece is like, how can we pull this anchor up? Like, how can we look at these values, look to this lighthouse knowing that, you know, gosh, I feel so vulnerable if I put myself out there in the dating world, not feeling good about what my body looks like. Can I be willing 
to take those actual steps to get my ship sailing, moving, even with all of that fog there, allowing that lighthouse to really be the beacon that's going to guide the way. And I think that kind of pulls all of ACT together in one place. Yeah, it does. I love that. That's a perfect place to end. And um, gosh, I just want to thank you so much for sharing all your beautiful wisdom about acceptance and commitment therapy. Of course, there's so much uh, additional information and we'll link to um, your book, which has some wonderful information as well as to your website and any other resources that you think might be helpful. And Jill, I just can't thank you enough for coming on and honoring us with your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun. Support our podcast by leaving us a review on iTunes or by making purchases from our guest authors through our Amazon link. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com.